Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We are nearing the end of John chapter 6. Another one or two more weeks to go. But this morning, we, we center on the most challenging words of Jesus in the chapter. This is certainly the teaching that causes his own disciples to begin to abandon him. Um, in this paragraph we look at this morning, verses 52 to 59, Jesus insists that if you are to have life, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so we'll consider what that means, what it doesn't mean, and how we are to apply that. I'd like to begin by reading John 6, 52 to 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Lord God, as we consider this text, give us the faith to receive the understanding to apply what our Lord is saying, that we might not stumble over it and grumble over it as the crowd and the Jews and his own disciples did. Help us to see the, the critical truth for what salvation means and looks like for us. May we be those who eat his flesh and drink his blood in the manner in which he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been here for the last six weeks or so, I'll give you a quick summary of John chapter 6. It is a single unit. It's why, even though we're in part 7, you can't really understand any part of it without understanding the totality of it. In John chapter 6, Jesus begins by working a notable miracle, the one miracle of his ministry that's found in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And we considered what John added and what John took out of his account. What I mean by took out is he didn't bother to relate. It's not that he disagrees with some of the details the other Gospels give. He's just not interested in them. So John doesn't mention that Jesus taught them all day. John doesn't tell us um, that Jesus dismissed the crowd. John does tell us in verse 4, the Jewish feast of Passover was at hand. That's significant. And John tells us why Jesus left so suddenly. The other gospels tell us that he walks across the lake. Well, he leaves because in verse 14 and 15, the people saw the sign he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They, they identified Jesus as the promised prophesied fulfillment in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you among your brothers, a prophet like me. The problem was they, rather than wanting to be taught by him, want to make him king. And verse 15 gives us, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. 
So this is why Jesus departs. The crowd correctly identifies him, but the so what, they want to make him king. So he leaves. Then the narrative from verse 16 to verse 24 has the disciples and Jesus and the crowd crossing the sea, getting over to Capernaum. And then picking up in verse 25, when the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, and now we get the teaching, the discourse the next day that explains the significance of the narrative. And they begin speaking about the, the bread in the wilderness. They get the connection. Like, like Moses before him, the prophet like Moses fed the people miraculous bread in the wilderness. They get this. But they want him to keep working. They want him to keep doing more signs, more miracles. And they stumble over Jesus' claim to be the bread that's come down from heaven. And they say, look, we, we know his mother and his father. How can he say, verse 41, I'm the bread come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus' claims to greatness, divinity, are what they stumble over. And Jesus responds by ratcheting it up further. And he ended last week by shifting from bread to flesh. That's the movement. We start with bread, and this morning, we're going to focus almost entirely on flesh and blood before Jesus brings it back to bread and ends this discourse. He sh- the shift from bread to flesh is in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus there makes the shift, bread to flesh. He's already set this up partly by talking about thirsting. Drinking has already been put on the table, in a sense, in verse 35, where Jesus talks about whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Well, thirsting brings up the notion of drinking. So he's, he set these things up before, but now he comes to them this morning's passage. So we're going to look at this in three points. The response of the Jews related in verse 52. And then Jesus is going to make two parallel statements. He's going to say, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And then there's a consequence. So we're going to see the Jews' response and then two critical truths about what happens, what is the effect of, and what is the meaning of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So first, the Jews disputed among themselves. This is intensified from verse 41 where they're grumbling. They go from grumbling to almost conflict. They're agitated. This troubles them, what Jesus has just said. Um, Further than removing their concerns and their trouble about him claiming to be from heaven, he's now talking about giving his flesh for the life of the world. Notice also that their, their estimation of Jesus is dropping. In verse 14, they say, the high point of their confession, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Then in verse 25, we go from that vaulted title to a respectful rabbi, teacher. When did you come here? So he's the prophet, he's the teacher, Now he's just this man, this fellow, I think some translations say, this one. Their their estimation of Jesus is dropping quickly, dropping quickly. They now speak of Jesus as this man, and they do not understand Jesus' metaphor. They do not understand Jesus' metaphor. 
Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and he's given them already. I went to great pains to stress this. We'll do it again this morning. He's given them the metaphorical key. Remember, the people talking to him here have no knowledge of what Jesus will do in a year. In a year's time, at the next Passover, Jesus will take the institution, the Passover meal, and he will give it new significance. He will direct it towards himself, and he'll instruct his disciples to continue the practice, what we call the Lord's Supper, otherwise known as the Eucharist, the Lord's table or communion is instituted chronologically a year later. No one in the first instance would make any of those connections. We surely see some similarities and some points, but nobody here would. Nobody here would. It's a metaphor, and he's given them the key to the metaphor. So let's speak negatively. What is Jesus not talking about? Well, most directly, Jesus is not talking about cannibalism. I know they put that in because the earliest critics of Christianity, that was exactly the charge they made against them as they misunderstood the Christian's regular love feast, their celebration of the Lord's table. It's not cannibalism, nor is it communion, communion. And I'll pause here and, and re-explain why. And the reason why this is significant is some of the strong, those churches and those church traditions that have the highest view of the Lord's Supper, argue from this paragraph we're looking at here. Luther, Martin Luther, refused to unite with Ulrich Zwingli of, of, of Switzerland precisely because they couldn't agree on the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And Luther is getting his view almost exclusively from this paragraph. Um, so why do I say it's not about communion? Well, I've given you one reason already, because nobody in the first instance will make that connection. Jesus doesn't make that connection. Secondly, John doesn't make that connection. John, the narrator, at times is willing to tell us, the audience, the readership, what things mean. So we were told in chapter two, when Jesus said, destroy this temple in the three days, I'll raise it up. Oh, G Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, he tells us, helpfully. Oh, that's what he's talking about. But he doesn't do that here. But more importantly, if this is about communion, then Jesus is saying an awful lot more than I think you or I would like to give in Credence Communion. If, if this is about the Lord's Supper, then the Lord's Supper becomes the means of salvation. Now that is, of course, the Roman Catholic understanding that the Mass, the Eucharist, is a critical element, a necessary element, a necessary means, a sacramentum of grace. You this is why the Pope could bring European nations to its knees during the Middle Ages. They'd simply shut off the Eucharist forbid their priests from giving out the Lord's Supper, and under their teaching, that meant the people so deprived would perish and go to hell. Look at what the text says. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. If you think that's talking about the Lord's Supper, then you'd have to conclude whoever partakes of it has eternal life. And whoever doesn't partake of it has no life in themselves. It becomes a necessary to salvation issue. So you'd have to conclude far too much. We'd have, instead of justification by faith, we'd have justification by Eucharist. But nobody in the first instance would understand it that way. But more to the point, Jesus has given us, and I'll stress this again and again and again, the, the interpretive key to his metaphor. He's, he's not speaking in riddles they can't understand. Look back at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, so just unpack this really slowly. Coming to Jesus is an activity that results in the cessation of hunger. 
And believing in Jesus is an activity that, that results in the ceasing of thirsting. So what is coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus equated to? What, what activity normally ends hunger? Eating. And what activity normally ends thirsting? Drinking. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Coming to Jesus is equated with eating. And believing is equated with drinking. This is also consistent with the statements Jesus makes in this chapter, just to make it clear. We, we see in this passage, most plainly in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. But if you look back further, verse 27 to 29, Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the same statement made in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. We're talking about the same thing, one directly, one metaphorically. There's one activity that results in eternal life and being raised on the last day. It's coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus. So point one, eating and drinking in this chapter are coming to and believing in Jesus. Jesus has made this abundantly clear. And only when we come to the text after the fact, knowing about the institution of the Lord's Supper, knowing about the observance of communion, would we then start to say, that must be what this is talking about. Which I want to make one more statement on this from D.A. Carson. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of similarity here between what Jesus is saying and what we're going to do a little later in our service this morning. But I think those of us, if you, if you think Jesus here is talking about the Lord's Supper, you've got it backwards. Rather, I think the Lord's Supper pictures what Jesus is saying here. Chronologically, which one came first? Which one informs the other? I'll, I'll read Carson. Okay. Insofar as there may be an allusion to the Christian Eucharist, readers of this text, if a dialogue within the church, if, if sorry, if the readers are aware that the church's regular celebration of the Lord's Supper, they would likely see in the rite itself a picture pointing to the central object of faith, the Lord Jesus himself. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, says Carson, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. I think that's exactly right. Um, after teaching this, a year later, Jesus institutes a sign in the picture, continuing pointing to some of the reality he's saying here. So this in first instance is about coming to him, believing in Jesus, looking to him with faith. And then later, a year later, Jesus will co-opt the Passover meal, give it new significance, and that new significance will picture some of that reality. But if, if we don't take it that way, we, we won't end up with the view like the Roman Catholic Church and some other traditions have of thinking that what we share and what we eat later this morning is somehow magical, somehow infused with grace. Rather, it's a sign, it's a token, which can be significant. Signs can be very significant, but a sign of the reality. So we got to move forward. So eating and drinking then relates to coming to and believing in Jesus. What is his flesh and his blood? His flesh and his blood, 
are his sacrificial death. His flesh and his blood are his sacrificial death. Now, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17. What Jesus says here is particularly challenging for them if they're not tracking the metaphor. Because eating flesh, as, as grotesque as that might be, what's worse is drinking blood. It is strictly prohibited under the Mosaic law. Strictly prohibited. Leviticus 10. But this will help give us some significance. As Jesus is trying to explain what coming to in faith looks like, how it is he saves, his use of flesh and blood, I think we'll see points and unpacks where he's going with this. So Leviticus 17, verse 10. If any of the house of Israel, or if the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I'll cut him off from among his people. Why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So get this. It's not that blood in itself is magical. The blood represents the ending of the life of the animal. It's the, it's the bloody death. And the blood, to the degree that it represents the death of the animal, is what the Lord has ordained in the sacrificial system to offer atonement. So when Jesus speaks of his blood, it's not as though he could have come and given a pint, like we sometimes do at the blood drive. It means his bloody death. And to the degree that he gives up his life. And so in that context, flesh and blood should point somewhere, especially as John has helpfully said, what, what Jewish holiday feast is fast approaching? Passover. Turn to Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is another place where flesh and blood come together. Right next to the, the institution of manna, Exodus 16 is, is manna. In between 12 and 16, we have the crossing of the Red Sea, the Song of Moses, and then it's manna. So these events happen in close sequence under the leadership of Moses. Moses institutes the Passover under the Lord's instruction, and now Jesus, the prophet like Moses, is speaking in similar terms. Let's take a look at this here. Exodus chapter 12, 6. We'll start in verse 6. Talking about the Passover lamb. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So with Passover fast approaching, with Exodus 16, the manner in the wilderness already in view. When Jesus begins to speak about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, we, we know that the blood was prohibited to eat precisely because it carried the life of the animal in it. So Jesus is talking about his life. He's already said, look at verse 51, giving us this giving up language, this sacrificial picture um, in John 6, back in John 6, verse 51. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Which is already setting up sort of sacrificial language. And then he talks about flesh and blood. So we're talking about a sacrificial death. So putting that together, when Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's talking about coming to him as the crucified one. We can put the categories more clearly for us. Coming to Jesus, most specifically, Jesus hanging on a cross, Jesus suffering for our sins, Jesus bearing the guilt of our punishment and finding life, nourishment, and trusting in that. 
That's what he's talking about here. Feeding on that, finding life in his death. So with that understanding then, what does Jesus say is the result of feeding and drinking? Two, first, whoever eats Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood has life. Jesus said to them, the fourth time now, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So first we get it negatively, a negative insistence. Unless you do this, you have no life in you. Now notice the interposition of the title Son of Man. It's not the first time he said it in this chapter, but again, it notes a claim to his deity. We understand when Jesus says son of man, he doesn't mean prophet like, say, Ezekiel does. He means what is in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, even as he's talking about giving up his flesh and blood, giving up his life, takes this title, Son of Man, and insists you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, which means coming to, believing in the Son of Man, the crucified Son of Man. So Son of Man, point one here, he must be received as divine. Jesus never backs down on these claims. They're critical claims. In chapter eight, he'll say, unless you believe that I am, he's taking the divine name, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is the point that offends the crowds. They know Jesus. They know his parents. They know, they know his hometown. And they, tr- they trip up on his claim to be from heaven. But he insists, no, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Which brings to the second point. Notice this clearly. Jesus is the only source of eternal life. This negative rules out any other avenues. Unless you meet these conditions, you have no life in you. So so flesh that out. Sorry, pardon the pun. Um, There's no other avenue for life, is there? No other religion. No other savior, no other right or tradition. There is coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, specifically the crucified God-man, or there is no other option of life. This is an explicit claim. This is narrow. Point three, and nothing other than full participation will avail. Nothing other than full participation will avail. The words for eating and drink dominate this, this, this paragraph. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh, the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And it's, it's present tense, it continues eating. This isn't about nibbling having a snack. This is about sitting down and participating in a meal, fully coming to Jesus, fully trusting in Jesus, continuing to come to Jesus, continuing to to feed on him. This is part of the reason I think the Lord gave us this sign 
If I'm right, the communion actually unpacks and pictures some of this teaching. We regularly give a sign which declares we are those who regularly feed from, find life from, find strength from Jesus. You do it once, but you keep doing it. We keep trusting. We keep clinging to him. Jesus will make that clear in his second saying here. But the first, if you are not coming to him, trusting in him, believing in him, you have no life in you. That, that's, that's Jesus explicitly clear. So he must be received as divine. He is the only source of eternal life and nothing other than full participation will avail. You can't be on the fence with this. Again, we're going to see this crowd who came out to the wilderness to find him, who spent the night there, who got up the next morning and sought him. They're putting, they're putting time and effort in. They're going to leave. They're going to go home. Why? Because whatever commitment they have to Jesus is insufficient. This is the point about the great apostasy. Don't, don't miss this. Verse 52, verse, sorry, 60. What, the very next passage we're going to look at. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If simply praying a prayer once and being done, guaranteed eternal life, what is these people's problem? Jesus is talking about a continual feeding, a continual trusting, a living faith. Nothing other than full participation will avail. Then he says it positively. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So this is the wonderful promise Jesus is making to all of us. The one who eats and drinks has, not will have, there's a present tense and a future tense. There's a present benefit and a future benefit. Jesus says, presently, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you have come to Christ in faith, if you are trusting in him, continuing to trust in him, if your faith is living and active, if what Jesus speaks of here, those who look to the Son of Man and believe, speaks of you, you right now have life in you, eternal life in you. And you have Jesus' own promise that his word will resurrect you on the last day. That's why these stakes matter. This isn't about just having a better life. This isn't about just having purpose or meaning. This is about life and death and the resurrection of the just. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. Again, this is tied in with Jesus' claim to deity. Jesus is claiming again, as he did in chapter 5, to be the one who will raise the dead on the last day. The one who eats and drinks has eternal life. Jesus will raise him up on the last day. And then we get a statement of basis, why this is. Point C, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So again, we see that Jesus' death is the only true source of true life. Jesus' death is the only true source of true life. This is why the incarnation was necessary, only by taking on flesh. The incarnation, the carne, incarnation, flesh, the enfleshment, the Son of God, 
was necessary so that he might give up his life, bleed and die. And that death on a cross is the basis and source of our life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And flesh and blood in this context, my my death, my bloody death. It also says something remarkable as well. Point two, hunger and thirst then were created to point to this. This is remarkable, but consider how God made the world and how he could have made it differently. I mean, we, we take some of these things so much for granted. For instance, isn't it odd that no matter how rich, how powerful you are, the greatest sultan who ever lived, every ooh, 16 or 17 hours has to lie down prone and unconscious every day? No, isn't that odd? No, no, we, we take it for granted. But, but understand God made us and he made us in his image. But one of the ways he didn't make us in his image was that every so often you and I lie down prone and unconscious and helpless. And we learn that God does this in part to teach us we're not him. In what way is God not like us? Well, according to Psalm 100 and, where's my, oh, there it is. Psalm 121.4 the Lord your God neither rests nor sleeps. So one of, the, one of the reasons, why did God make us this way? He didn't have to make us so that we needed to lie down prone for eight hours at a time. He did it to humble us and to show us we're not him. Well, there are other things God set up. We learned that God made marriage. Ephesians 5 tells us this. Why did God make marriage? Why was it written, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father? Paul tells us, this mystery is great. And I'm saying it speaks of Christ and the church. The human institution of marriage was made so that there might be an analogy, a model, so that when the gospel was clearly revealed, when the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, was revealed, there would be language and pictures and a model in place to speak about this. In other words, Christ and the church is the reality, and the image, the thing that pictures and points to it, is marriage. Well, here Jesus says he's His death is true food. And I'll pause and consider again, isn't it odd that God made us so that consistently, over time, not much time at all, we begin to hunger and we begin to thirst and we begin to yearn for food and drink. And if we do not get that food and drink, we grow weary and we grow tired and eventually we die. And again, God didn't have to make us that way. We, We could just sort of draw energy in from the sun like plants, right? Why not? He made us this way, I believe, so that, again, he could teach us something. And we get some of this from Deuteronomy 8. Listen to what Moses says to the Israelites. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, Whether you would keep his commandments or not, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God made you and me such that 
every couple of hours, we need something outside of ourselves to give us strength and sustenance. And if we do not take in food and drink from outside of ourselves, because we're not self-sufficient, we die. And Moses is saying, God did this so that we would remember we are not self-sufficient. We rely on someone else. And that regular hungering and that regular thirsting is meant to remind us we are those who need and we have a God who gives. That's the whole point of fasting, is it not? Every time you're hungry, you remember your dependence on God. Fasting is a way of humbling yourself to be reminded that you're not self-sufficient. You can't handle it. You need help. You need grace. So if that's why God set these things in order, he made us so that periodically we need to take in food and drink. Jesus is saying the ultimate thing that it points to is needing the food and drink of Christ's death. I'm suggesting God set this up to creation to anticipate and train us and point to our ultimate need, not of food that we eat with our mouths, but food that is spiritually received, the, the death of the Son of God on the cross. Jesus says, my flesh is true food. All the other food you've ever seen is simply shadow food that points to this. And my blood is too dr- true drink. Think of that next time you're hungry and thirsty. It's a reminder of what you truly need. Hunger and thirst were created to point to this. And finally, in verses 56 to 59, we learn whoever eats Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood abides. Abides. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. First thing to notice, this abiding is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He We abide in Jesus, and Jesus abides in us, or in him, the one who does this. There's a reciprocal abiding. So what does that mean? It means we continue to come to and believe in him. That's what abiding in him means. Turn turn to John 15. This is setting up a theme Jesus will unpack the night before his death on another Passover. Just as the words eat and drink dominate this paragraph, the word abide dominates John 15. And the same reciprocal abiding is discussed here. John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. 
For this, my Father, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So, one of the reasons why I stress the, the faith the coming to Jesus that saves is a living and active thing. If, if you can only say you believed in the past, but you're not believing now, I, I don't think such faith does any good. What Jesus is speaking about is, and this is partly why we keep repeating this sign. Baptism is a sign we don't repeat. We, we do it once to signify the beginning of something. But, but the Lord's Supper is a sign that signifies the continuance. Just as you and I every day eat and drink, so we regularly give this sign of coming to and eating and drinking the death of Christ, finding life in his death. So Jesus says they abide in him and he abides in them. That's, that's the reality. So if you want to stack it up this way, we've got a group of people, a group of people spoken of a number of different ways. Who is the group of people that has eternal life and Jesus will raise on the last day? This text, all of chapter six, defines them in the following ways. The group of people who have life, eternal life, and will be raised by the son on the last day are those who believe. They are those who come to him. They are those who believe in him. They are those who look to him. They are those the Father has given to him. They are those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. And here, they are those who abide in him and he in them. Those are all biblically true ways to describe that group. And notice how John 6 is giving us numbers of angles to look at what saving faith is, what it means to have eternal life. It means to become and to keep coming to him. It means to believe and keep believing. It means to feed and keep on feeding. It means to drink and keep on drinking. It means to look and not look away. And it means to be given by the Father. It means to abide in him and he in you. And then we get another after the reciprocal. We continue to come to and believe in him, and he continues to indwell and sustain us. Now, in John chapter 14, we'll learn he does this through his Holy Spirit, whom he sends. But now we get a comparison, a comparison. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is, this is amazing. The argument is this. Jesus was sent by and lives because of the Father. This is a restatement of what he said in John 5. Turn back to John 5, verse 26. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus states his life is derivative. Now, we're not entirely sure if he's speaking purely incarnationally, purely about his life as the enfleshed God-man, or something greater, but he said that in five, and he's, he's repeating the theme here. Jesus is dependent upon the life of the Father, being sent by the Father. Now we learn that in a similar way, whoever feeds on Jesus will live because of him. So understand this, the, the life that we have and we share is the overflow of the life of God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what it means for him to be living bread. 
Jesus was sent and lives because of the Father. Whoever feeds on Jesus will live because of him. So just as Jesus says, the Father has life in himself and the Son lives because of the Father, so those who feed on Jesus will live because of him. We share in that life. We share in that life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. That's the comparison. There's similarity. Then we get contrast. And now we're back to bread again. So Jesus pushes us out as far as eating flesh and drinking blood. It started with a discussion about bread from heaven and manna, and it's gonna end back talking about living bread which is to say it's one discussion about one thing using different metaphors, eating bread, eating flesh, drinking blood, coming to him, believing in him, looking upon him. This, this then is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. And again, all human hunger will recur and all human food and all human drink will not stop you from seeing death. But God has so ordered the nature of our lives that these repeating realities point us to a food source that gives life. This is so much greater than the bread given in the wilderness, so much greater than what Moses mediated. And whereas Moses mediated the bread, Jesus is the bread. He is going to give himself up. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then finally, we get the context. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Capernaum seems to be a place later in Jesus' life, at least, where his family dwells. The end of chapter 2, his mother and his family return there. His base of operations. It's not surprising then that these people know his mother and his adopted father. It's tragic. We know where this is going. It's going to go to the defection of the crowd, the defection of the disciples, the 12 alone are going to remain. But as we look on along the edges, don't, don't stumble over this either. Jesus insists on a vital, trusting faith that feeds and finds nourishment. You can't, you can't snack and nibble. <laughs> you need to drink deeply, eat fully, coming to Christ. And as we transition to a time of communion, I'll pray and we'll transition to that. That's exactly what this sign pictures. It's not the thing itself. This is not the body of Jesus. This is not the blood of Jesus. But it points to them. And it points to our continued feeding, our continued drinking, our continued believing and trusting in him. And as we point to those things, remember the very great promises he has put if you, eat this drunk, if you eat this bread and drink this cup rightly, you are those who have life. You are those who he will raise. You are those who abide in him and he in you. Let's pray. Lord God, as we partake of this sign, may we do it rightly. May we do it soberly and somberly. Understanding the, the, the great privilege given to us, the great honor afforded us, and that we might um, rejoice in the bread that has come down from heaven, given up on our behalf for the life of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to call the uh, elders and ushers down. We're going to pass out the elements to you this morning.
read to you briefly what Paul says to us. Now, I've said and I've stressed this is only a sign. It is not the thing itself. I think some believe that the only way for, that we would continue to take this seriously is by saying it conveys grace. I don't think this meal conveys any more grace than any other act of faith and obedience by the people of God. However, signs can be serious things. And Paul warns the Christians at Corinth who lightly, hypocritically partake of the sign, they can drink, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Let me read that to you now. Whoever, there eat, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what does it mean to eat and drink rightly? What does it mean to examine yourself? What, is, what, is, what are the qualifications? Well, first and foremost, if you're going to share in this meal, the eating and drinking needs to rightly picture your ongoing trusting and believing in Christ. That you are, This activity pictures the reality of one who has come to, is clinging to by faith the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. You don't have to be sinless. You need to be a believer. If you haven't come to faith in Christ, if you have not put your trust in him, if you've not bowed the knee to King Jesus, let the cup pass. If you have, then examine yourself. Make sure you come in a, in a right spirit and a right mind, and you will be accepted.